Welcome to another episode of Bereans Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. My name's Devin, I'm the lead pastor here at Berean, and this is my third crack at the can today as far as preaching this sermon, and I've recognized something. We don't have a lot of time to spare, so we're going to get after it today. Now, if you are here and you are a note taker, maybe this is going to be your jam. You're going to be like, just hit me with these sermons every week, week in, week out, more data, more information, more facts. If you're here and you're more of an observer, and you like to sit and to contemplate, to think, Hopefully, you'll you'll walk away with something to think about. Good? So today, I want to talk about both the history, the biography of Jesus, some of those important kind of historical and contextual elements, and I want to talk about the theology, who he was. Because if you walk away with an incomplete picture of either of those, you're going to have simply not enough. So let's talk about history. Jesus was born somewhere between 4 BC and 6 AD. Time out. Some of you are like, how does that work though? I thought BC meant before Christ and AD meant after death. And then what do you do with that 33 years in the middle? And how could Jesus be born four years before Christ? Doesn't really make sense. Well, let me unpack that for you. You see, the modern way that we calculate time as far as B.C., before Christ, or before Common Era, and A.D., Anno Domini, was invented by a monk named Dionysius in 525. So this individual was studying history, studying the Bible, and he wanted to capture and to date Jesus' birth. And so he did his historical research and came up with this idea that Jesus was born at year zero. Now, modern historians and those throughout the history of the church have looked back and said he did a great job, this Dionysius guy, but there were some records that he drew from that probably weren't that trustworthy. So, there you have it. Jesus was born sometime between 4 BC and 6 AD. He was born in Bethlehem, which we celebrate at Christmas time. He spent a little bit of time in Egypt with his family, but his hometown his upbringing took place in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a small, middle-of-nowhere town in many respects. The ancient world, because of the influence of the Roman Empire, these weren't detached, um, kind of isolated communities, but Nazareth was no more than 400 total population. In fact, it was so meager and so modest that modern archaeologists and historians have yet to find anything of substance from a historical, architectural, or artistic standpoint. 
There were no paved roads in Nazareth. There were no grand Roman amphitheaters that you find throughout Israel or around the Roman world at that time. It was a meager and modest town. Jesus, growing up, had an adoptive father, Joseph. He was born of a virgin. And because of this, there was always question or criticisms or hints that Jesus' birth was illegitimate. You can see this at times come up in the Gospels, where opponents of Jesus will point to him not really knowing who his father was. Small towns, sometimes the rumor mill can move quite quickly. Jesus' father, adoptive father, Joseph, would have been a carpenter, a hybrid between a carpenter and a mason. If you've ever seen pictures of Israel, or maybe you visited, you'll see that there's not a lot of significant forested areas. Israel would import a lot of its um, timber, lumber from outside, but they had a lot of stone. And so Jesus followed in his father's footsteps and would have been something like a hybrid between a carpenter and a mason. What language did Jesus speak? Well, what language did Jesus know? Because as much as we look back at the ancient world and we think that we are modern and we are intelligent and we are sophisticated and they were primitive and they were simplistic, the Roman world in this period of Jesus' birth and his early years was quite developed, quite cosmopolitan even. So Jesus around the household would have likely have spoken Aramaic. Jesus would have known Greek as well, more than likely, and he would have known Hebrew. He would have been trained in synagogue and through the Torah about Hebrew and how all these languages worked themselves out in the day-to-day is unknown, but Jesus would have known and spoken a number of languages. He spent most of his life in obscurity, working on construction sites, working as a carpenter. But at around the age of 30, he began his public ministry. Now, we're not given a lot of information about Jesus, about what he looked like, how tall he was or how short he was, if he was thick, if he was thin. But we do know that his public ministry, while powerful, wasn't in his own lifetime very far-reaching. He never traveled in his ministry more than 200 miles from his hometown. He was baptized in the Jordan River. He went throughout the region preaching and teaching, casting out demons, healing people, having confrontations with the religious leaders. You see, there were people who had this mixed-up idea about what the Messiah was going to do. And so when Jesus comes, he is helping reorient them around the truth of who God is, the truth about this Messiah, that he has come not simply and only to overthrow the evil Roman Empire, but to overthrow the very forces of darkness that plague not just our life here and now, but our eternal life. Jesus' ministry continued for some time until he ran afoul of some of the religious leaders of the day. He was arrested. He was accused. He was abused. He was put on trial, and in the mockery of a judicial hearing, he was condemned to death. 
He was crucified on a Roman cross, and three days later, he rose victorious over the grave. Now, even though Jesus never traveled more than 200 miles from his home, even though he never built any buildings like the Caesars, even though he didn't hold any public office or write anything down that we have recorded for us, he transformed the world unlike anyone else. There are more books written about Jesus, more songs written to Jesus, more poetry and prayers offered up to Jesus than anyone else in human history. In fact, there are aspects of the church's history, of the legacy of Christians in the past that people love to latch onto as being negative. I recognize those, and we can have conversations about those in particular. But the positive influence of Christianity upon the medical establishment, upon higher education, the value of an individual is pronounced and profound. And all of that comes through Jesus. There is no one who has transformed the world and has the legacy of Jesus. Today, around the world, there are two billion people who claim allegiance to him. But there's more. Building on the facts about Jesus. Today I want to look with you at a passage from John chapter 5. Where Jesus reveals who he truly is. You see, rather than simply walking out of here with the ability to recite a bunch of facts about Jesus, what I want and what I desire for you is to walk out of here responding with faith, belief, trust. My goal and my heart and my prayer is that you would be amazed at Jesus that you would behold him and that you would be amazed. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter five. I'm gonna put it up on the screen here. Now, as I was reviewing and as I was studying, uh, I wanted to include verse 18 in our discussion here today. Now, as we read God's word, I want to invite you to stand with me if you're able. We're going to put the words up here on the screen, but I'm just going to read to you verse 18 because I I have heard so many times people say, well, you know what? Jesus never claimed to be a deity. He never claimed to be God. That was just, that's modern theologians and Christians importing their theology on the ancient world, on the life of Jesus. Well, If you would feel that way, if you would argue that, let's take a look at verse 18. John the writer says this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father. Listen to this. Making himself equal with God. So Jesus' original audience, his hearers, those that he rubbed shoulders with, that understood the world back then, that they lived in much better than any of us today, saw his 
actions. They heard his words. They saw the references that he was making to the Old Testament. And they come away with this crystal clear picture that Jesus was going around claiming himself to be equal with God. And as Jesus takes the center stage here in verse 19 of chapter 5, we hear from his own words that this is exactly the case. Let me begin reading in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show you, so that you may marvel, so that you may be amazed. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those whom have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. You can be seated. Early on in this discourse, this, this talk by Jesus, he explains that the whole reason that he has come, that he is revealing these things about himself, about who he truly is, is so that you will marvel, so that you will stand amazed. John the Baptist declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold him. Here in this text, the invitation is to behold and be amazed. Now, I've shared before that I've never actually taken a class on preaching. All of my education was was academic. I, I never got around to it. But I've read enough books and I've worked with enough preaching coaches to know one thing. It's not generally recommended to do seven point sermons. So, we're just going to give it a go anyway. (laughs) Again, if you're a ferocious note taker, maybe this is going to be just an incredible experience. If you are not, I hope and I trust that in this process, that as we walk through this text quite rapidly, 
that God will begin to do something in your heart that you will not just behold, but that you will be amazed. Because today from this text, I wanna offer you seven reasons why you should be amazed at Jesus. Here's the first. Be amazed at Jesus because he reveals God. Look at verse 19 and 20. Truly I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Listen to this. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. This is an incredible claim. Whatever the father does, that's what the son does. I can't say that and neither can you. None of us have this ability. You could say there's some things that the father does that I do, right? I, father is kind and compassionate and gracious and in a limited, finite way, I act those out in my day to day. Sure, I'll grant you that much. But there is no one in this room today, there is no one alive today who has the power and the authority to say whatever the father does, that's what I do. How can Jesus claim such a thing? He can claim such a thing because he is God in the flesh. He has come to reveal God to us. This is the central Christian teaching called the Trinity, that God is one. There is one God. There is one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I get that there's an aspect of this that is beyond our comprehension. There is a mystery to this. But I don't think that you and I should expect anything less. I was listening to a podcast not that long ago about quantum mechanics or string theory. Some guy was a scientist, physicist, was showing off what he knew. And he made this comment that if anyone, scientist, PhD, astrophysicist, if anyone claims to truly understand string theory or quantum mechanics, they don't understand string theory or quantum mechanics. That even in the natural realm, there are some things that are beyond our comprehension, that our finite, tiny, and limited brains cannot hold all of this intention. How much more for the real, true God of the Bible? You see, if everything in faith made perfect sense to us, in the sense that our finite, limited brains could completely grab hold of it in every way possible, it would then clearly be the creation of a human mind. But when you're dealing with the infinite, glorious, all-powerful, and eternal God, who spoke all things into existence, you should expect that there are times that he will blow your mind, that he is too much for you. He doesn't ask us to, to hold mutually exclusive truth. He does ask us to recognize that there are parts of who he is that are beyond our comprehension. Jesus is fully God. He is not 50% God and 50% man. He doesn't have a little pouring, a little dollop of God in himself. He isn't simply an anointed person, anointed by God. 
He is not a split personality. He is fully God and fully man. And he comes to us and he reveals God to us. Here's why this is good news for you. Beyond just a theological concept upon which his death and resurrection are so intricately linked. Here's why this matters to you. Because every single one of us have moments, have times, and have seasons where we sit there and we say, how could God ever love someone like me? You have those moments where you say, how do I know that God really has grace for me? After all the things that I've done, all the ways that I've messed up, Here's why this truth speaks to that tension directly. You can open the Bible, open the Gospels, and see Jesus interact with people like you. And what you see when you do that is that he delights to pour out his grace on broken, hurting failures like me. Because when we see Jesus, the guessing games about God stop. I wonder if God, how could God ever, we look into the gospels, we look into the New Testament and we see God come in the flesh. If you want to know God, you know the Son revealed to us coming into human history. The gentleness and the kindness of Christ is the gentleness and kindness of God. In Colossians chapter one, we read that he is the image of the invisible God. That the same God that there upon the mountain was too much for Moses to take in. the holy God of all creation, this is Jesus, come in the flesh. Be amazed at Jesus because he reveals God. Number two, be amazed at Jesus because he raises the dead. Look at verse 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. In 2 Kings 5, 7, the king of Israel cries out just the recognition of human limitations. He says this, am I God that I can raise the dead? Elijah, you say, Elijah in the Old Testament raised somebody up from the dead. That's true. But there is no person in the Bible who has the power or the authority to raise whomever he will. That's Jesus's ability, his right, his power, his authority, and his alone. It's not merely that he was a miracle worker who once did this, that he has in himself this power and this ability. In John chapter 11, we read about Jesus coming to the cemetery, coming to the the tombs where his friend Lazarus had been born. And at this point, Lazarus had been dead for a number of days. 
rigor mortis, decay, would have set in at this point. And Jesus goes to the cemetery and he calls out and he says, Lazarus, get up. He has power and authority over the grave. He raises the dead. I've heard some old timey preachers say it's a good thing that Jesus specified who he wanted raised from the dead. Because if he just blanketed that term out and said, hey, get up out of the grave, then every grave would have been empty. Why? He has this power. He has this ability. He raises the dead. So be amazed. Number three, be amazed at Jesus because he judges all. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. In Genesis 18.25, we read this, that God is the judge of all the earth. But here, Jesus is saying, I have the authority, I have the right to judge. He judges all. That's both good news and bad news. None of us want a world or an existence in which there is no judge. Maybe you read through the pages of history, read an article about some evil, broken person hurting people. Maybe you have been hurt by somebody who is wicked, who is evil. You don't want a God who's a relativist at that point, who simply says, it's okay, it's fine, it's not a big deal. I got over it, why can't you get over it? No, there is evil and there is wickedness and there is a judge. We don't want a judge who simply lets the guilty go free. except when it comes to us, right? When somebody sins against you, well, man, they are, they are messed up. And you want everyone to know about it. You want to be vindicated. And you spend all night rehearse, rehashing conversations and what you could have said or what you would have said or how you would have beaten that guy up. Because they're in the wrong, Right? But when it's you, well, you were really tired out that day. And you were really stressed out. And, you know, that's not how you normally behave. And it's so easy for us to, to want a judge for someone else and then to look at ourselves and say, well, they were mitigating circumstances. I was tired that day. I didn't sleep well. I've been under a lot of stress. We make excuses for ourselves for the things that we want God to judge other people for. But here's the good news. You and I don't have to take matters into our own hands. Do you see what a liberating truth this is? It's okay 
if people lie about you, say negative things about you. I mean, you want to address it the best that you can, but at the end of the day, you may be wronged. You may be hurt. It happened to Jesus. But you don't have to carry that because there is a judge. There is a source of vindication apart from getting your way in an earthly sense. And there is no wicked or evil act from the beginning of human history until this moment today that will not be judged rightly and correctly. Either that person who hurt you will pay the penalty themselves. They will be judged themselves. Or Jesus will. He is the judge and the one who took our judgment. Be amazed that he is gracious and true, that he does not show favoritism, that he does not minimize or excuse sin, but that he judges and received the judgment. Number four, be amazed at Jesus. Be amazed at Jesus because he receives worship. Look at verse 23. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. If you want to honor the Father, you have to honor the Son. What this means is that Jesus is not just an acting figurehead or some leader commissioned on behalf of God. He can be worshipped as God because he is God. Now, there are instances in the New Testament where Jesus is the object of worship, where people would fall at his feet and worship him where his early followers, many of whom, the majority of whom were Jewish, would encourage people to worship him. What Jesus does in those instances is he doesn't stand there and say, whoa, whoa, guys, relax. You know, the Ten Commandments, don't worship any other God. Like, keep it, don't worship me, I'm just a man. He doesn't go there. What does he do? He joyfully receives worship. And his earlier followers joyfully invited us to worship him. No one is to be worshipped. Nothing is to be worshipped apart from God himself. So we can rightly worship the son. We can honor the son and in so doing honor the father. No one deserves worship other than God. Because if we worship anything other than God, we are worshipping something less something that will diminish us rather than cause us to flourish. But Jesus receives worship. So when we sing our songs, when you contemplate him, when you, when you worship him in private or in public, you are honoring the Father. You are honoring the Father through the Spirit to the glory of Jesus. Praise God and keep going. Be amazed at Jesus because he is worthy of our worship. 
be amazed at him. Number five. See, I told you, I got seven points. I'm looking at the clock. We got to keep just, keep our heads down and keep going. Number five. Be amazed at Jesus because he saves sinners. 24 and 25, this verse here, look at these. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus saves sinners. This is good news for you. Why? Because you're just like me. And this is really good news to me. Jesus saves sinners. Causing us to move from death to life. Those who hear Jesus' words and believe who he is can be saved. This is the gift of eternal life. You see, we have this issue that often crops up where we tend to picture eternal life as something that comes one day, right? Like, like the grand payoff of a relationship with the living God of all creation is that you get a ticket to heaven. Now, is it true that trusting in Christ secures your, inter- your eternal inheritance someday? Absolutely, without a doubt. There is no entrance into eternity with God in the new creation, the new heavens and earth, apart from faith in Christ. But that eternal life is not simply a future promise. It's a reality that's expected to be experienced and lived out today. So if all Jesus is to you is a ticket to heaven, and you have no concern with him today, you might want to look closely at that ticket that you have in hand because it might not be leading you to where you think you're going. That eternal life is a gift that is breaking through through the resurrection of Christ into the here and now. That yes, the best is still to come, but he has some good stuff for you today. That eternal life is pressing into, ought to be pressing into your life today. Jesus saves sinners. The dead hear his voice and come to life. Jesus has the right to save sinners. He has the authority to save sinners. He has the power, the means to save sinners because he is God. So be amazed at him. If you have experienced this, if you have received him, just just think about it. Think on it. Chew on it. Marvel at him. Be amazed at Jesus because he saves sinners. Number six, be amazed at Jesus because he gives life. He gives life. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus has life in and of himself. That's why he can grant you eternal life. He has it. It is his. He has triumphed over death. death. He has triumphed over the grave. That's why he can grant you eternal life. 
The reason that Jesus can save sinners, the reason that he can bring the dead to life is because he is God. In the opening pages of Genesis, you see God's unparalleled, unimaginable power and authority. He speaks and it is so. And he uses his word to accomplish his ends And he creates mountains and oceans, the sun, the sky, all manner of creepy crawly, gross beasts and and mammals. He makes it all. He makes it. Elephants to emus, baboons to bats. He makes it all through the power of his word. His word brings life. This is why Jesus can grant you life. He has this power. He has this ability. Be amazed at who he is. He gives life to that which is dead. Once you were dead in your sins and transgressions, Paul says in Ephesians 2, but now you have been made alive with Christ. Be amazed. Stand in awe, worship with joy and gladness and hope. Be amazed. Number seven, and finally, be amazed at Jesus because he will resurrect all. Verse 28. He says this, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He will resurrect all, good and evil. Now, hold on. Is this teaching work salvation? That good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell? Is that No, he's already defined what is good, what is acceptable, what is pleasing to God, and that is to believe in the Son. So he's not saying here moral people are raised to life and wicked people are raised to judgment. He is saying that your eternity hinges on your response to Christ. There's an expression. YOLO, right? You only live once. Kind of as a, hey, why not? Let's go for it. But whether you are a Christian or you're not, YOLO's not true. You will live again. You will either be raised to eternal life or you will be raised to eternal judgment. You see, we spend so much time trying to milk the most that we can out of life, and I'm all for it, man. Set goals, work hard, don't waste your life, use it for God's glory, serve those around you, get after it. But do you recognize how short this life truly is? What are you gonna get? Now you're real fit, you got good genetics, you're gonna get what, 80? 90, oh, God bless you, 100 years. Isn't that something? 10 billion years from now, you will be conscious somewhere. Because you will be raised either to life eternal with him 
or to judgment eternal apart from him. The difference is Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Be amazed at Jesus. Now, as I said, never taken a class on preaching, but I know from the books I've read that you're supposed to give people something actionable, application points. Let's get practical. How can you improve your life this week through God's word? That's that's warranted. That's fair. But I don't want to give you three steps. I don't want to give you two application points. I want to give you seven, seven points and a vision. And an invitation. And a, an encouragement. To do more than just go out and act better this week. Or to go out and change your behavior a little bit. I am inviting you, urging you, calling you to behold him and to be just amazed. As we worship and conclude, discipline your heart. Think often and well about his glory, his beauty. When you open his word, don't go for just a trite little nugget for the day, but go to see the holiness, the beauty, the majesty of Christ. This is why you put to death sin. It's because of Jesus. He has something better for you. Be amazed at him. You see, we all want to improve our marriages. We all want to improve our relationships, to improve our performance at work. We all want to be different people, maybe a little bit better in some way. All of this stems from your view of Jesus. So behold him, church, and be amazed. In this journey to the cross, as we approach Holy Week, my prayer has consistently been that we will behold him and be amazed. Let me pray. Father, there is no shortage of that which can draw our hearts, our minds, even our our wonder away from you. And I pray that through this content-heavy teaching today, that the truth of your word, Jesus, the truth of who you are in your infinite majesty and glory would be consuming to your people. Every one of us struggle in different ways. Every one of us has areas that we want to grow, sins that we want to find freedom from hurts from the past that we need healing. And Jesus, the core, the core of all of the answers that we seek is you. 
So may we behold you afresh. May we be amazed and with wonder and joy grow in our love for you in this journey to the cross. Amen. And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, just jump online to our website at bereanmn.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.